I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Place where empires go to die. Mike Malloy said this about Afghanistan, and there are plenty of examples to make his point. The British Empire, at its height in the late 19th century, suffered a genuinely smashing debacle of a defeat at the Khyber Pass, and it really could never come to grips with the country itself. The Russians in the late 20th century made fools of themselves trying to conquer Afghanistan. They tried to overawe and outgun the natives, only to be repeatedly humiliated and sent packing. Learning nothing from the failure of these enormous superpowers, the United States, in the early 21st century, found itself in the same jagged mountains and dusty countryside as we all are very familiar with now. Going on 20 years of fighting, thousands of U.S. personnel have died, countless injured or forever altered, and trillions in treasure has been spent. The cost to the native peoples of Afghanistan can never be fully tabulated. All this has created what General Petraeus termed a, quote, generational struggle, end quote. And it's not our first go-around this particular dance floor. Not even close. I can't think of a place more different in appearance from Afghanistan than Vietnam but the thickly jungled Southeast Asian country has just as much claimed to be a graveyard for empires as anywhere else. The Mongols, perhaps the greatest conquerors of all time, had a rough go in Vietnam. Various Chinese dynasties had made plays at controlling their southern neighbor with varying degrees of success, but ultimately they could never quite conquer the country. Then the French tried to stake a claim, But at Dien Bien Phu, it became abundantly clear that continued colonial rule just wasn't going to happen. As late as the 1980s, the Red Chinese government made a play, sending tanks and armor over their shared border. Again, the Vietnamese sent them packing. And of course, there was that whole 20-year quagmire known in the West as the Vietnam War. A futile fight to pen in the spread of communism The Vietnam War saw the United States go from humiliation to humiliation. Even though it was one of two superpowers at the time, and Vietnam was a far, far, far weaker opponent on paper. Of course, on paper is the key phrase there. By the war's end, over 50,000 U.S. soldiers had died, maybe as many as a million Vietnamese had died, and those numbers are up for debate and always changing. The war also broke the country's trust in its generals and military leaders. General Dwight Eisenhower, affectionately known as Ike, left a presence, a sense that generals were full of integrity and that the people could believe what generals and the military had to say. Of course, then came Vietnam and false hope and -and out-and-out lies of progress, footholds, victory is close by, an end is in sight, the end of the tunnels here. All these things came flooding from the top brass, 
to the rightfully skeptical press and eventually found their way into the newspapers and television screens of every American. Even more damning was, for the first time, the public got to peek into the mad, mad world of fighting an angry, insurgent, riddled native population on their nightly news. It's out of these dark, steamy Vietnamese jungles that comes the insane line, quote, It became necessary to destroy the town to save it. End quote. The chaos inherent in that kind of thinking, though, is by no means unique to the Vietnam War or the latter half of the 20th century. There is another place where empires have gone to die and where military minds were at a loss for how to win. In this place, a decades-long struggle would kill and maim thousands, produce 88 Medal of Honor-worthy tales, see five future Army Chiefs of Staff, and have many of the famous names from World War I and World War II see time in the fighting line. Today, this war is mostly forgotten. A quick Google search produces only a handful of books to be had on the whole conflict. Compare that to 10,000 and more for both the wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan, and it tells you how little we actually look back and think about what was happening at this time. This hellish place generated the same kind of deadly madness as those other wars, and it was just as violent. One U.S. official prophesied the paradoxical reasoning of the Vietnam-era quote about destroying villages by saying of his punitive and brutal pacification methods, quote, While these methods may appear harsh, it is the kindest thing to do. This time on Cauldron... Let's go back to the island of Holo in the southern Philippines. Let's go back to the humid, sticky air of March 1906, to a mountain that sat among the clouds, a volcanic rock with cliffs so sheer a man had to crawl to climb. Let's go back to the crater where hundreds of native Moros, men, women, and children, awaited their deaths to the crater crest where crag-carrying modern U.S. infantrymen prepared to punish the desperate sword-wielding natives with terminal violence. Let's go back to March 5th through the 8th, 1906, and the Battle of Badajo, also known as the Moro Crater Massacre. At the turn of the last century, a strange kind of fever struck the adolescent United States. Empire building was the global game of the old world, but the new world wanted to be dealt in a hand. A little over 30 years on from the horrors of its own civil war, the U.S. felt strong and vibrant. There was an enterprising energy and a desire to finally take its place among the major players, the movers and shakers of world events. There was a sense also that to be considered among the powerful countries, a nation needed colonies. Like a kind of global letterman's jacket, colonies showed precisely how far a state could exert influence or power. This, in turn helped that country to exert further influence and then gain more power and so on. The empire building of the age had an added twist, the growing fear that time and land was running out. The big players, 
Britain, France, Spain, and even baby Germany had, in, in some cases, spent hundreds of years stringing colonies together to form empires. Now the world was getting smaller, and there was less and less land to claim, and what there was could and would be very problematic, to say the least. As a nation whose very foundation was built upon the repudiation of empire, whose core values despised the very idea of colonies, establishing a U.S. empire would require some fancy diplomatic footwork and some serious ideological flexibility. The, quote, white man's burden reasoning, which explained away the evils of empire via delivering the word of God, Western laws, and the modern world, was at its peak in popularity in the 1890s. Even still, the United States needed more impetus than missionary work to start planting the flag on little far-off islands across the globe. Beyond the fact that the country was born from the fires of a revolution fought to escape the tyranny of empire, the nation's foreign policy over the previous hundred or so years had walked a deliberately isolationist line. John Quincy Adams laid down the accepted national stance on international affairs, saying in 1821, quote, Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will recommend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example, end quote. If the country wanted colonies, it would have to be clever about acquiring them. A combination of circumstances did the heavy lifting, and soon the U.S. found colonies plopped right into its very lap. In early 1898, the USS Maine shook Havana Harbor as it burst into a ball of flame and sank. The Cuban city was rocked by the massive explosion, and over 250 members of the ship's crew died in the blast. For years, the fight between Cuban revolutionaries and Imperial Spain had been raging across the island. Atrocities of the most violent and heinous kind were committed by both sides, and the U.S. was in the uncomfortable position of trying not to pick sides. Many in the U.S. stood by Quincy Adams' speech, believing that sending an early version of thoughts and prayers to the revolutionaries would stand as enough support. Some thought that it was okay for the U.S. to send aid and supplies and put pressure on Spain so long as there was no boots-on-the-ground intervention. And then another group in the U.S. wanted to unleash the Navy and unsheathe the sword on the decrepit Spanish Empire. Future President Teddy Roosevelt, under Secretary of the Navy at the time, was decidedly in this latter group. And still others just wanted to make money. The incident in Havana Harbor provided this last group with precisely the fodder that they needed. William Randolph Hearst and Pulitzer mobilized their vast media networks, and in the age of yellow journalism, these guys were the best. 
A fever swept the nation, passed from person to person with cries of, Remember the Maine! The people wanted Spain to pay, and the news moguls fueled the flames. Finally, the momentum proved too much, added with a push by powerful Democrats at the time, and President McKinley signed a joint congressional resolution that demanded Spain leave Cuba for good. Spain, of course, refused, cut ties, and declared war. The U.S. followed suit quickly after, and by late April 1898, a war was on. The mystery of the Maine is still up for debate. From fifth columnists to spies to the Spanish themselves to wandering minds and even ship design, everyone and everything has been blamed for the disaster. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, I would probably go with the bad design. Of course, who knows? The war that followed was more of a slapdown than an actual fight. At Manila, the U.S. Navy under George Dewey completely crushed the outdated Spanish Navy. T.R. and his Rough Riders won their famous victory at San Juan Hill and at Santiago de Cuba. Again, the U.S. Navy emasculated the Spanish Navy. By August of 1898, just three short months after the declaration of hostilities, the war was over. Spain lost in those three months what had taken 300 years to build and would never truly recover. The U.S. had shattered its opponent and now had the right to pick and choose her pelts. Cuba seemed like an obvious prize. A mere 90 miles away, it was thought by many that the island could quickly go from colony to state in no time. The very idea, though, struck fear in the hearts of many Southern politicians. A U.S. state with a majority black population like Cuba would have made Jim Crow and other blatantly systemic inequalities very hard to maintain. Added to this group was the sugar lobby, who feared that the influx of Cuban crops would devalue their own. The combined concerned parties won out, and the Teller Amendment was adopted, which allowed for a two-year occupation of Cuba, and that was it. No colony, no statehood, no prize, and for McKinley, this was no good. In something of a bait-and-switch, President McKinley staked out another island as the real spoils of war. Or, more accurately, another chain of islands. 400-plus islands, actually. He claimed for the United States the island system of the Philippines. With a population and landmass three times that of Cuba, there was a lot to like about this consolation prize, even if most Americans couldn't find them on a globe. The islands were rich in raw goods and materials. More importantly, though, they would provide the U.S. Navy with vital coaling stations on the other side of the Pacific. The navies of the day could sail only as far as the coal that they could carry, so a string of coaling stations around the globe gave immense advantages to a navy that could use them. The islands would also function as a jumping-off point into China, whose markets and trade the U.S. has been lusting after for a very long time. But before China could be wooed, the Philippines had to be settled and governed. Really a series of island chains, the Philippines were really not an easy place to tame. 
The Spanish had failed, for the most part, to bring this melting pot of a nation to heel. They had, however, succeeded in making the majority of the country Catholic, that is, all but for the troublesome South, where the Moros lived. Early on in the occupation of its new territory, the U.S. fought a nasty resistance in the Northern Island Group. This Philippine-American war was a three-year affair that forced the natives to their knees and gave the U.S. a taste of what being the colonial master was like. As this fighting in the North settled, the population in the southern islands grew restless. It's here that the Catholic population dwindles and the Koran becomes the book of choice. Off the southwest coast of Mindanao, in between the Philippines and Malaysia, lies the Sulu Archipelago. The regional capital city, Holo, is on the aptly named island of Holo. This is the heart of Moroland. The fighting in the southern islands was particularly violent and harsh. It was the type of insurgent warfare that reminded many in the United States of the recent Indian Wars. Bodies were being mutilated and disfigured, deadly night raids were happening almost every single day, and an enemy that could melt into the terrain and use ritual and the landscape to deadly effect were all hallmarks of the fighting against the Sioux, the Comanche, and the Apache. One man that knew this kind of fighting personally was Major Hugh Scott. A genial, dutiful man, Scott was known as a capable soldier who could get things done. Before coming to the Philippines and governing over Sulu province, Scott had fought in the Indian Wars. He'd been able to pick up languages easily and proved invaluable as a translator and a diplomat. Scott helped in dealings with Red Cloud of the Sioux, and he even got the famous Chiricahua Apache of Geronimo fame settled for a time on their reservation. His time with the Apache was spent getting them adjusted to, to their new lives and reality, and he also was trying to help them get more self-sufficient on their reservation. His outlook on natives as a whole changed over time, and he eventually rejected any notion of racial superiority, going so far as to support the idea of integration of the army in his journals. Scott was an empathetic and insightful man, and while fighting in Cuba, he was assigned to the exact opposite. General Leonard Wood was a New Hampshire-born doctor that went out west in search of fame and glory. He was contracted by the army in its fight against Geronimo. While running around the Southwest, Wood received a belated and highly controversial Medal of Honor. It seems nobody is quite clear what he did to earn the citation, or even really who put him up for it. Regardless, the country's highest commendation for bravery was bestowed upon him, and Wood cashed in on the resulting clout. Two weeks into the Spanish-American War, Wood was a rough rider and fast becoming friends with the future vice president, Teddy Roosevelt. This association propelled Wood's career over the next 20 years. After the war with the Spanish, Wood was in charge of the Cuban occupation force, and then President McKinley sent him to be the military CO of the Philippines. At the same time, Wood was made the civil governor of the Philippines, this effectively made him the law and the sword of the land. 
Clearly a charismatic and confident man, Wood was prone to grudges and could be insufferably self-righteous. This cocktail of personal traits would prove devastating in Moroland. I think one clean-cut lesson will be quite sufficient for them, but it should be of such character as not to need a dozen fritting repetitions, said the newly arrived Governor Wood of his plan to whip the Moros into order. He planned to use brute force and subjugation to bring the unruly natives to heel by, quote, thrashing them. During his tenure as governor, Wood planned to render the upstart moral population impotent and afraid. Hugh Scott must have been absolutely horrified. Scott wanted to use local contacts and the acceptance of cultural norms as a way of getting the natives to submit to outside rule. The Moros especially had a history of fighting oppressors. In fact, the Spanish seemed to have just kind of given up trying to control them at all. Scott's co-opting of community leaders and his turning a blind eye to some of the more backward local activities was by 1905 beginning to work. Then Leonard Wood intervened. The Sedula tax was a kind of head tax, slash ID, slash census. It was meant to give the government an idea of how many men each Datu, which were the local leaders or strongmen, controlled. The payment was minimal, only a peso, and in return, the payer received a form. This was kind of like a, an ID card that was carried at all times, and it said that they had paid their tax and were okay to go wherever they wanted. It wasn't much, but it set off a whirlwind of anger and resentment. The Moros refused, rightly claiming that the Bates Agreement of 1902 protected their local customs and exempted the Moros from the Sedula tax. Because the rest of the Philippines province was dutifully paying this tax, though, General Wood didn't believe Moroland should get special treatment. He was determined to show the folks back in D.C. that he could be the most productive, if ruthless, governor the Philippines had ever known. His reasoning was not wrong, either. The tax was going to be used on roads and schools, but the Moros wanted none of it. Taxation without representation and all that, you get the idea. Beyond the unfair nature of the Sedula tax, there was also a religious angle. Many of the Moros felt that taxes paid to anyone but God himself was not just wrong, but it was blasphemous. This very concept of taxation to them was actually unholy. The Sedula tax was so hated that the local Datu or strongmen of the Sulu province refused to collect it at all. They feared to lose their status among the people more than they feared Hugh Scott and the American oppressors. Pressure from Wood to raise the Sedula mounted, and Scott had to think on his feet to get things done. He eventually brokered a deal in which the Datus would pay the Sedula tax for each of their supporters. In return, Scott would look the other way on some of the local customs like the slave trade, wife-stealing, and piracy. Now, this was clearly a band-aid, and it was not meant to solve anything more than the immediate issue. And it worked for a little bit. 
A Moro pirate raid on Borneo killed several British citizens, and the pirates fled to Holo. While in hiding, the leader, Pala, became something of a local hero, a rallying point for those unhappy with the Sedula, with American rule, and more importantly, with the Datus themselves. Pala exposed the Datus as no more than American bagmen and lackeys, the henchmen of the oppressors. By spring 1905, dissident groups sprang up all over Holo. Fighting both their Datus and U.S. forces, these little bands were in a no-win situation. They were outgunned and quickly found themselves being rousted out of every hiding spot they could find. As the summer of 1905 went along, Scott became aware that some of these dwindling little groups were congregating on a nearby mountain, a place called Budaho. He sent several local contacts up the volcano to negotiate and spy. By doing this, he learned there were some 500-plus people and maybe 100 guns on the crater. The position was strong, with plenty of spring water and some well-made defensive structures. But food was going to be an issue, and Scott hoped that the Moros on Badajo would be forced by the shortages of food to come down of their own accord. He recognized that taking the position by force would be pointless and challenging, with little upside. Scott didn't see the point in sending Americans up there to risk death when time likely would solve the problem. He put it simply saying, quote, After all, what would they be dying for? To collect a tax of less than $1,000 from some savages? End quote. This sit-tight-and-play-it-out strategy was beginning to work, and by the end of 1905, less than 10 family groups remained atop Badajo. Unfortunately for everyone involved, especially the Moros, Hugh Scott had an unavoidable four-month leave stateside that removed him from the picture entirely. Almost as soon as he left, the shit hit the fan. With Scott gone, theft and banditry spiked on the island of Holo. The Datus blamed it on the few remaining refugees on Budaho, and American authorities believed them. Likely, though, some of these acts were indeed desperate moves made by the Badajo people to feed themselves, but the majority were caused by clever Datus that understood Scott being away gave them the freedom of action they had been lacking, and they took advantage of it. Scott's interim replacement got jumpy and declared the vandalism and theft to be outright acts of war and terrorism. The whole thing could have been de-escalated had it been understood that the crimes were more cultural sport than terroristic in nature, but Scott was probably the only one that would have seen that. Instead, the information was sent back to Wood, who saw an opportunity to once and for all show the Moros who was in charge and give them that little lesson he'd been waiting to give them. Something happened between December of 1905 and February of 1906, but the record is mysteriously blank. For some unknown reason, the population of Badajo swelled from those ten family groups when Scott left to almost a thousand people. The exact cause is lost to history, but we can guess that some fresh outrage or some new reckless policy from Wood renewed the moral restlessness.
There seems to have been quite a bit of record wiping in Woods headquarters, and we will get to that eventually, but there was already a culture of cover-ups. Regardless, the Moros were gathering on Badajo, and Wood wanted them out. He had to act quickly, too. The new president, Teddy Roosevelt, Wood's old friend, had heard some minor grumblings about the general's health and mental state, and he wanted to hide him away for some time. T.R. planned to remove Wood by ostensibly promoting him to command a diplomatic mission to China. Wood received a direct order from the CIC to turn over command to his replacement, Tasker Bliss, as soon as Bliss arrived. Wanting to present both Bliss and T.R. with a fait accompli, Wood ignored the orders and proceeded with his planned removal of the malcontents on the mountain. All through late February, Wood sent envoys up and down the trails of Badajo, attempting to negotiate but without any real meaning or desire for peace. He wanted to draw things out while his forces gathered and got together, and he also wanted to take a better look at the Moro defenses and capabilities. The Moros, for their part, had no intention of leaving their volcanic stronghold. Wood's choice, it was becoming clear, was not one of violence or peace, but of how best to demolish the Moros. A plan to surround the mountain and wait out the Moro supplies was put forth and rejected as impossible. It also would have taken far too long for Wood's liking. Remember, he needed to get this done before anyone found out he wasn't supposed to be in command anymore. The other option was to set fire to Badajo's jungle-covered slopes and try and smoke the Moros out. This again was rejected as impossible, but was pocketed as a possible backup plan if it came to it. The third option was most to Wood's liking, and it's what he chose. A full-on assault of Badajo by combined U.S. Army, Navy, and local constabulary forces. His reasoning was that with overpowering firepower, his forces would swiftly breach any defenses and the Moro would be finished off thoroughly. As Joe pointed out in his TR presentation, General Wood seems to have been a relatively unimaginative military mind. He was far better at the politicking of generalship. To take Badajo, Wood planned on sending three columns up the three main trails of the mountain, then they were to assault the crater and remove the Moros. Very straightforward and very simple. Of course, Badajo itself is far from straightforward and is something of an imposing geographical oddity. It's an inactive but not extinct volcano, and at 2,175 feet above sea level, 500 feet across, and 300 feet deep, the mountain was deceptively squat. Even so, the peak was often concealed by puffy white cloud cover that hung low in the thick, humid air. All the way around Badajo are steep, craggy sides. In some places, a staggering 60-degree incline leads up to the volcanic crest, and the crest itself was more like a knife's blade, thin and unforgiving to the inattentive climber. On the mountaintop, there were three separate summits, each a terminus of the three main trails Wood intended to use. These trails were in places little more than cuts in the dense foliage of vine, brush, and trees. 
The fauna could and would provide excellent cover for attackers coming out of the brush. It was so thick that the attacker would go unseen until they burst forth from the jungle, hacking and screaming. Narrow, steep, and straight, these trails would be easy to defend. Lined with booby traps and crisscrossed by smaller paths known only to the Moros, these trails were more likely to become death traps than attack routes. What the Moros had in natural defenses, they lacked in armament. There may have been as many as a thousand natives on Badajo, but there probably were only somewhere around three to five hundred that were armed and willing to fight. Of these, there would have been some rather old men and young boys and a small number of women. Nowhere near the latter claims that all the women and children fought, but still there was probably a smattering of both. Sprinkled in amongst the fighting force were single-shot Remingtons, a few of the modern Krag rifles, and some antique muskets, all told a total of somewhere around 100 to 150 long arms. Added to these were 60 to 80 pistols of all sorts. Ammo, again, was of varying quality and caliber and, most crucially, in minimal quantities. The Moro had no real artillery or mortars to speak of, but they did have a kind of jerry-rigged anti-personnel shotgun. The Lantakas were old swivel cannons used to clear boarding parties from ship decks. The South China Sea was and is a waterway filled with pirates, and the Lantakas were likely taken from some of these local pirate vessels. By the 20th century, these antiquated deck guns would have been considered museum pieces, but in the jungles, they could still be very deadly. Packed with musket balls, rocks, glass, screws, trash, even oyster shells, they could be hidden and set with a tripwire. When set off, the Lantaka would fire its load in a short but powerful fan-like burst. It was, again, like a giant anti-personnel shotgun. Anyone close by would be shredded and wounded or killed. The Moros on Badajo had probably six to eight lentacas sprinkled around their defenses. The rest of their weapons would have been short swords called krises and barongs, and these were specially designed with waves and, and teardrop-like forms so that they could slash and cut deep and make really, really tough gashes, things that would heal poorly. They also had daggers, spears, and when desperate, were throwing boulders, rocks, or anything else that could be rolled or tossed down the mountainside. The Americans, for their part, came to Badajo loaded for bear. Each of the U.S. Army infantrymen carried the five-shot bolt-action 30-40 caliber Krag, an excellent rifle. The crag is capable in the right hands of putting down a withering, almost continuous hail of fire. And each man had plenty to keep the shooting up. They carried with them 200 rounds per person. With the constabulary force, which uh, was a sort of militia, police force, foreign legion, used as an ancillary aid to the American occupation, uh, with the constabulary force, there were some Craig carbines and some older Springfield Model 1889s. Among the officers, there were Craig carbines, some nasty but deadly pump-action shotguns, and these shotguns were so effective in close combat during the Philippine occupation that they caught 
future general uh, John J. Pershing's eye, and he made sure to bring some of these to the trenches in France a couple years down the line. Also, most officers had a 38 caliber revolver as a sidearm. No old-timey swivel cannons for the Americans, either. They brought along with them four small 75-millimeter mountain guns, or potato guns. These were more akin to a modern-day mortar than actual artillery, and were of dubious effectiveness at Badajo, but nevertheless, they threw some substantial lead into the air. And by the battle's end, Badajo would indeed introduce the Moros to the modern age, when the U.S. force dragged up three 30 caliber Colt automatic slow-rate machine guns. A far cry from the human scythes of the Western Front, these Colts were still very deadly. Against a mass of half-naked Moros with nowhere to run or hide, the Colts, Crags, shotguns, and carbines proved horrifically capable killers. On March 4, 1906, just a tick under 800 joint U.S. and Constabulary infantrymen and officers trekked from the capital city of Holo to the foot of Badao. The small cavalry contingent of Colonel Duncan, the commanding officer under Wood, reconnoitered the base of the volcano and located the trailheads for each column. They also noticed some ambuscades in Kata, the Moro had erected along the trails. The ambuscades are relatively uh, stable wooden rope defensive structures made with a bunch of uh, different items like bamboo and, and spare wood and whatnot. These are kind of like a cross between palisades and Napoleonic anti-cavalry fences. Cottas, on the other hand, are more structure-like. They're not quite villages, but more of a group of small, stout little buildings that are often connected by little defensive walls to create strong points or bastions. Uh, both the ambuscades and the katas proved time and again to be hard points of contact for both sides, and abrupt little battles within the battle were fought over them. To take out these moral positions and to capture the mountain itself, Colonel Duncan was going by General Wood's plan, which was, again, very imaginatively, to send a column of infantry up each trail, the east, the west, and the south trail. In reserve, Duncan was going to keep a flying column at Badajo's base with the ability to move in support of success or to shield in case of failure. By the afternoon of the 4th, Colonel Duncan's forces were in place and his men beheld a sight that is straight out of an adventure movie like Zulu. All along the volcano's crest, red flags of war and resistance were flapping lazily in the sticky jungle breeze. From out of the crater, the sound of thudding war drums and crashing gongs came down the rocky slopes and met the Americans as they prepared their camp. Along with the thudding and clanging came chilling screams and howls, the war cries of the Moro warriors willing themselves to fight to the death. March 5th saw all three columns begin to climb. The East Trail column was first to engage, with one man saying, quote, The enemy opened fire, with rifles and lintakas, which we returned, and a short engagement followed, end quote. 
On a small hill, a battery of the mountain guns was dug in and prepared to lay down covering fire. At 600 pounds each, these guns weren't ideal for the steep climb and loose dirt of Badajo. They proved fairly unreliable and weren't able to help the columns very much on the first day. As the fifth moved along, all three columns slowed and stalled out. The grade of the climb and the need to stop regularly to deal with traps in the ground and juramentados springing out of the jungle killed any momentum the columns might have had. Germantados are fascinating warriors that deserve their own episode, but in short, think of a modern-day suicide bomber. Different from the Amoks of the region who would go wildly into any crowd with the intent to kill as, as many men before they died, where, also, by the way, Amok is where we get the modern term of running amok, Germantados um, or Germantados had a purely religious angle. They would ritualistically shave and cleanse their bodies and then use strips of cloth to tie off all of their appendages. Wielding two blades, they would then find a group of Christians to target and rush in for the kill. With the ties on their limbs working as ligatures or tourniquets, American soldiers found them very, very difficult to kill. Often it would take three, four, or even five rounds from the 38 caliber sidearm of the time to put a Germantado down, which, as the story goes, is why the Colt 45 would become the adopted sidearm of preference of the U.S. Army. The idea of a, a screaming, whirling, sword-wielding, fanatical warrior springing forth from the deep, dark jungle running right for you just chills the blood, and it must have been a hike like something out of a horror movie for the men trekking up Badajo. To try and keep this moving along without getting too caught up in the details, which I'm sure you're laughing at right now, I'm going to telescope in and highlight a few key actions over the next couple of days. The fighting on Badajo in general is a confusing mess, but we can still get the flavor by diving in on some detailed action. On the 6th of March, Colonel Duncan was in a panic. He had been told to take Badajo by Wood, but he hadn't been told that Wood wanted to be on hand and in person before the fight began. Basically, Wood wanted to supervise without having to tell his commander that Wood wanted to supervise. So Wood is hustling to Holo and then to Badajo to take over, and clearly communication throughout the command is up in the air and very confused. Of course, meanwhile, Duncan is trying to figure out what the hell is happening up on the mountain. Communication there was also proving slow, confused, and absolutely useless. Telegraph and signals were out as an option because the jungle and volcano made made seeing any of those or using them impossible. That left only runners as reliable forms of, of communication. But because of the distances involved in the terrain itself, the people that had to do the running had their work cut out for them. Up and down, down and up, all day, while still worrying that any time a Moro could come out of nowhere and attack them along the trail, and also 
trying to maneuver up and down these trails that were just straight up in places and had no real good purchase. It was just, it was not a great job. It was difficult for the officers to find volunteers, which meant that they had to just kind of select reluctant natives from the baggage handlers or from the constabulary forces. And and all this meant that orders were snail-like, information was frequently stale, and the whole day was a jumble of contradiction and confusion. The fighting that did happen was sporadic and indecisive. One U.S. sniper came under Moro fire from the volcano's crest, and he wrote of the engagement that there was, quote, came a sputtering of rifle fire soon answered by our sharpshooters, who at a range of two or three hundred yards began picking Moros off the entrenchments on the skyline, like shooting crows out of a tree, end quote. The Moros were perfectly silhouetted against the sky and made easy targets for the expert marksmen. Even with these small successes, though, the constant need to stop, clear a defensive spot, wait for further intel or orders, scramble up the slope at times using roots and vines just to climb, made the day another slow affair. One column went a mere 75 yards in six hours of hard, sweaty work. The battle was not moving at the speed General Wood, Colonel Duncan, or the U.S. Army needed it to move at. Of course, that was about to change. Dawn on the 7th of March saw the constabulary force make a move on the South Trail. On the 6th, with all that confusion, Duncan had ordered all three columns to take the summit simultaneously. Again, we're not talking about Caesar, Alexander, or Patton here. It was soon realized by Duncan that this could have ended with a Mexican standoff, a circle of U.S. infantrymen shooting each other dead as they all came over the crest firing at the same time. The slow movement gave Duncan enough time to rethink this rather dumb idea. So on the 7th, he decided to have each column push forward, and then whichever was finding the most success, he'd reinforce that particular column. On the South Trail, Constabulary Captain John White and his men moved on one of those spiky log and bamboo ambuscades. As he tried to push his men over or around the low wall crossing the trail, Moro fire would come in hot and heavy from a cotta wall 75 yards away. It became clear to him that the only way that he was going to get to the cotta wall was to go through the ambuscade structure. Hacking and sawing like fiends, White's men finally cut a little hole through the center, but now White faced another problem. He had to get his 50 men through the gap and across the 75 yards, but that was a killing ground. As he shoved men through the opening, he recalled, quote, a storm of bullets. It seemed they were killed or wounded almost as fast as I could push them through, end quote. Each man that did make it through alive faced the scramble uphill under heavy fire. The goal was the relative safety of the Cotta Wall from where the Moro were firing. If they could reach the base of that wall, the U.S. snipers could keep the wall clear of Moros from firing over and down on them. When they did get to the wall, White's men weren't totally safe, though. The Cotta Walls had little firing holes like gun ports on a ship. And from each one of these, the Moros could peep out, aim, and shoot. 
White and his force had to make sure that they stayed well clear of these holes while they moved along the Cotta Wall's base. Seeing all his men through the hole and at the bottom of the Cotta Wall, White himself went through and recalled seeing, quote, a look of blank astonishment on the man in front of him. The poor soul had tripped a lentaka trap and the shrapnel had shredded his arm entirely off. Shaking it out of his mind, White sprinted to the kata and the rest of his men. White took stock of the situation and organized his men at the foot of the kata into climbing parties. Each group started to scale the wall but came under heavy fire. Even while taking accurate deadly sniper fire, the Moros mounted the wall and fended off the attackers with spears, swords, and anything they could toss. White had a heart-stopping moment when his shotgun jammed right as a Moro warrior swung a rifle and a pistol around and aimed them at his chest. And White was able to deftly clear the jam and unload a full round of buckshot directly into the Moro man's torso. A 22-year-old buck private named Vinton B. Hill watched the whole thing and said of his commanding officer, quote, This White was a very nervy man. End quote. Seeing that the tide was turning, two companies of constabulary forces were rushed up to support White and his men. Then a strange and haunting sound came from the other side of the wall. The Moro defenders had begun to chant and wail and sing. White recognized it immediately and called out, quote, They're singing their death song. This is the time to go after them. End quote. The time to push the attack had come. White jammed a chunk of nearby wood into one of the Kata Wall's gun holes, and he began to climb. An enemy spear whistled over his head, sending White sprawling backwards and to the ground. As he fell, the plugged hole exploded. The Moro behind it had fired into the chunk of wood and then into White's leg. He recalled the moment he was wounded, quote, A bullet from within pierced the wood cork. I saw the splinters fly and pass through my left leg just above the knee. End quote. The pain was excruciating, and White was dragged from the fight and put into a nearby ditch for safety. In incredible pain, he remembered hearing the din of battle reach a crescendo and then was followed by an American yell of, quote, They're coming over! It's a bolo rush! End quote. The Moro fighters knew they had lost the battle and were trying to die in glory or to cut their way to freedom or just to get the hell out of there. Vinton Hill was still in the fight, and when the suicide charge came on, he saw the Moros as, quote, They leapt over at us, and they charged first, but we beat them back and killed most of them right there, end quote. Not all the Moro warriors carried weapons only. In a bit of foreshadowing, White was told later that one Moro man had mounted the Kata wall, quote, with a baby in his left arm and his barong in his right hand. Both were killed, end quote. The moment was shocking enough for Vinton Hill to remember it 74 years later in 1980, saying, quote, I remember seeing Adam die. He jumped over those breastworks with a little baby under one arm and a criss. I'll bet you a dozen bullets hit him before he even hit the ground. End quote. While Vinton and White fought their way up the South Trail, 
The other two columns did the same. Eventually, all three were making steady progress towards Badajoz Crest. Mid-afternoon, though, saw the most success on the East Trail, where the three Colt machine guns were unleashed on a series of Moro trenches and katas. The CO of this column, one Mr. Lawton, wrote later, quote, The opening up of this gun had a fine moral effect on the whole command, who cheered repeatedly and showed themselves eager for the charge, end quote. The blanket of fire put down by the Colts forced the Moros into the trenches and ditches on the crater side of the summit. With the Moros now out of sight and unable to fire on them, the Americans formed up into a loose assault line or skirmish line. They advanced the final 50 yards to the summit through some of the densest vines and growth on all of Badajo. Hacking and cutting, sticky with sweat and grime, the Americans were exhausted, but they could tell things were coming to a head. Just before them, the blue and khaki-clad infantrymen from Ohio and Massachusetts and California could almost touch the clouds. On hands and knees, using anything and everything to grab and drag themselves up the mountainside, the Americans reached their side of the summit and halted. Twenty-five yards away on the other side, unseen, lay roughly four hundred Moros in their most elegant dress. Brightly colored sarongs, feathered headdresses, western-style shirts and pants, the Moros had dressed to die in their finest. Less than a third had rifles, but most had some kind of blade, even the children. They sang their prayers to Allah, and they hummed their death chants up to the sky. They were not seeking death, but if it came, they wanted to be ready. On either side of this volcanic crater crest, hundreds of people sat or squatted, unable to see each other, but prepared to deliver death. Then the peal of a bugle rang out in the heat of the late afternoon sun, and destruction came into the crater. Two hundred crag rifles and carbines, shotguns and revolvers, and even some of the machine guns poured into the crater below. Accompanied by the shouts and hollers of elated men that could taste victory, the weapons of a thoroughly modern world opened up on the huddled Moro mass. From twenty to forty feet away, the U.S. forces delivered a constant devastating barrage into the screaming, howling mob. Moments before the Moros and their best were now a writhing multitude of blood and chaos. Moro warriors, insane with anger and panic, sprinted out at their tormentors to no avail. The guns of the Americans kept the majority from ever reaching their intended target. When a Moro warrior did sneak through, they used everything from their krises to their hands to their teeth to try and kill. Most were quickly finished off. An official report states, quote, being shot down in their tracks with terrible slaughter, so that the kata and lip of the crater were soon piled up with dead, several bodies deep, end quote. In the ten minutes from the bugle to when Lawton called a ceasefire, according to author Robert Fulton, some 10,000 30-caliber rounds poured into the Moros. Add to that the total of some two to 3,000 from the machine guns, and the amount of lead flying through the air is hard to imagine. 
The Moros, in the final moments of carnage, had killed 10 Americans and wounded 25, but at a terrible cost. Almost all the huddled Moros had been slain by the unrelenting gunfire. The Moros, in the final moments of carnage, had killed 10 Americans and wounded 25, but at a terrible cost. Almost all the huddled Moros had been slain by the unrelenting gunfire. There's a famous photo of the aftermath of this slaughter, and I can't stress enough how important it is for you to go and look at this photo to truly understand what happened at Badajo. Now, I'll warn you, it's disturbing and it will undoubtedly shake you, but please seek it out and look at it. The picture is black and white, and it shows a group of tired, uh, disheveled U.S. infantrymen standing around in various poses, kind of resting and not looking particularly proud or pleased, but also not looking ashamed. At their feet is a trench with a log crossing the top. In the ditch are dozens and dozens of corpses, so many that it's impossible to really tell where one body ends and the other begins. The most horrific aspect is in the center of the frame, almost like it was planned. A woman lies clearly dead, but she looks almost as if she's leaning against the trench wall. In her lap, if you can stand to look long enough, you can begin to see clearly the form of a baby or a small child. Again, I don't want you to see this to... Uh, to study this so that it will screw you up or make you sick or feel bad. I simply want you to look at this so that you can fully understand and appreciate the horrifying aspects of this battle. I also believe that by seeing that mother and her baby, though they will forever be nameless, they will never be forgotten. As the dust cleared, the other two columns climbed into the crater. No prisoners were taken as the U.S. forces secured the area. The victorious side bivouacked on the battlefield that night, and it must have been a very eerie experience. When the sun rose on the 8th, the mop-up began. All the huts, katas, crops, and any structure was put to the torch. No body count was taken of the Moros for the sake of expedience and likely to keep things vague in the reports. Suffice it to say, one report stated, quote, no living Moro was found, end quote. The U.S. Army and Constabulary Forces lost 21 men and roughly 70 were injured. The bodies of the Moro were dumped into ditches or just left in the trenches where they fell. A small detachment of troops stayed behind to wrap up the disposal, and instead of burning the bodies, they just hurriedly threw dirt over the piles and left. Out of a possible 900 to 1,000 Moros on Budaho, 700 to 900 were killed. The exact number will never be known, the architects of the massacre made sure of that. A smattering of survivors were found all over the mountain, but this amounted to 24 to 26 scared souls, mostly women and children, that had been hiding for days. 
The cleanup was so half-assed and sloppy that years later, animals and degenerate souvenir hunters uncovered the bones and bodies and would scurry off with them. The angling and spinning of the Badajo tale began before the attack was even over. General Wood berated Colonel Duncan for acting without direct orders, and then he started constructing his narrative. The chaos and confusion of the events leading up to the assault on the Moro stronghold helped keep things murky and ensured the truth was not likely to be uncovered. As soon as the U.S. forces and Wood returned to Holo, the reports of a great battle hit the wire. In the style of the time, Badajo went viral, lighting up newsrooms around the world. T.R., on hearing the news, telegraphed his old army buddy, quote, I congratulate you and the officers and men of your command upon the brilliant feat of arms wherein you and they so well upheld the honor of the American flag, end quote. The first headlines hit the press, and Wood's fingerprints lay thick upon the story. Band of Moro outlaws killed, severe fight, cried the Newport Daily News. Moros defeated in fierce battle. Leonard Wood leads spectacular fight on mountain 2,100 feet high. The Fort Wayne News painted an adventurous picture. The image of Wood as the architect of a brilliant military victory is less than subtle, but at the time it was backed by T.R.'s telegraph. The people in the States just wanted the story, and the reporters tried to give it to them, damn the facts. The Des Moines Daily News led the way in feeding false details with this outrage-inducing headline. 47 American soldiers and sailors killed by Moro Band. On the 10th and 11th of March, a switch occurred. The gory, sensational, glory-touting banners of the significant newspapers changed. A more somber, questioning series of headlines appeared. The Racine Daily News simply let the numbers speak, saying, 900 killed in Sulu fighting. The Washington Post used a word in their headline that conjures in the modern mind Auschwitz, Gulags, and Pol Pot. The WAPO headline read, No Moro survived. Battle on Mount Daho was one of extermination. The New York Times jumped in, and for the first time, the establishment and government were questioned. Policy caused the needless killing of moral women and children. As the outcry for justice swelled, an investigation began by the Senate into the Badajo events. This played out in the papers as well. Senate wants to know about moral slaughter, said the Daily Review. Even at this early stage, it was clear the initial story was lacking in some key facts. Senators to discuss slaughter of Moros. They see no reason for any proud feeling over 900 deaths, said the New York Herald. Already the administration felt the pressure mounting, and then on the 13th, the blows came swift and strong. The identity of the death, and more accurately, their sex and age, started to leak. Children are shot. Moros use them as shields. Many women meet same awful fate. The Marion Daily Star wrote, It still tried to paint the Moro men as victimizers, 
but the dead women and children entered the story. Every headline over the next days across the nation had some torrid little detail or some horrific picture of the deceased. To combat the twisting narrative, the administration and Teddy Roosevelt reached out to some friendly papers and received some favorable ink in return. Not wanton slaughter, read a somewhat defensive Titusville Morning Herald. A more meek bit in the Newport Mercury went, The Daho battle, entirely unavoidable. On the 16th, the shame and guilt came to the forefront. Wood's battle called murder in Congress, read the New York Times. One particularly irate Virginian congressman used words like murder, assassination, shocking, and unnecessary to describe the debacle. He even took a shot at T.R. himself, quote, I am utterly unable to understand how the chief executive of this great country could endorse this horrible occurrence, end quote. This was followed by a mocking little poem from a Mississippian representative, a take on Tennyson himself called The Charge of the Wood Brigade or What the Heathen Call the Massacre of Mount Daho. A Dr. Charles Parkhurst of Madison Square Presbyterian Church, a powerful and respected voice at the time, said of the whole thing that it was, quote, no more brilliant a feat of arms than smoking bees out of a hive. End quote. The analogies to another American tragedy came thick. Just 15 years before Badao, in the twilight of the Indian Wars, men and women and children of the Lakota were slaughtered by Colonel James Forsyth and his 7th Cavalry. Outraged by the bloodshed, Forsyth CO General Nelson Miles demanded an inquiry. But the proceedings were a whitewashing sham and no punishment was handed down. The wound was barely healed by Badajo's time, and most of the nation strong, felt strongly about it. T.R., for his part, concluded, quote, The most ultimately righteous of all wars is a war with savages, though it is apt to be also the most terrible and inhumane. End quote. Others believed any war for territory and culture should be one of annihilation. There were also plenty of people who thought of pacification through peace. Whether Wounded Knee or Budaho, the United States' split personality reared its ugly head again, and not for the last time. The realization that the truth would never come and the facts would never be known was settling in. A campaign by Wood and his agents went to work, spreading stories about the fake events. The Bismarck Daily Tribune started it off with, Story of Massacre, a fake. General Woods says Manila reporters had no details and faked story of Moro women and children. Fake, says General Wood, call story of Moro women's killing a newspaper fabrication, read the New Brunswick Times. Again, everything new is old, even fake news. The disinformation continued with the New York Times declaring many moral women saved without indicating by whom and from what. A defensive Washington star joined in with not all were slain. Wading through the murky mistruths, some still sought out something like 
real truth to grab onto. A March 23rd Washington Post headline said, The people wanted a straight story. An editorial inside cried out with reason and anguish in equal parts. It said, quote, A war for civilization. Wood is civilizing the Moros on the idea that there are no good Moros but dead ones. There is no authority in the Constitution to shoot civilization into savages on the other hemisphere. If we cannot govern the Moros without murdering women and children, better that we withdrew and let them govern themselves. End quote. And with this little bit of reflection and self-disgust, the story of Badajo vanished. The earth under San Francisco bubbled and cracked, bringing Armageddon to the bustling port city on the West Coast. The next day, the headlines read, San Francisco is in flames. Hundreds are dead. Syracuse Herald. Earthquakes and a holocaust turned city of San Francisco into a chaos of doom. The Marion Daily Star. San Francisco is reduced to ashes. The Oakland Tribune. And these headlines continued for months and months, wiping the memory of the far-off Moro Mountain holdfast from the public mind. Every so often, an article would pop up here or there, but for the most part, few ever thought about the massacre again. The nation moved on and left the exterminated Moros in their volcano crater tomb, shrouded by clouds. Quickly, I wanted to just add a couple of addendum items, things that I just could not figure out a way to get into the narrative, uh, but I still think are fascinating little side bits to this whole Badajo Moro Crater Massacre situation. First off, the conversation as to whether or not it's considered a battle or a massacre, I honestly believe that all you have to do is look at the images and that will tell you everything. I firmly stand in the massacre um, in the on the side that uh, believes that it was a massacre and not a battle. Um, maybe it was a necessary one. That could be argued, I suppose. But um, just the images alone tell you everything you need to know. Samuel Clemens, or, or Mark Twain, would also go on to write in one of, I believe, his memoirs. He would decry the whole thing as a absolute tragedy, a travesty, something to be utterly ashamed of, and he wouldn't actually come out with that until after his death. He wrote about it while on a speaking tour to try and pull himself out of severe debt, uh, and it wasn't until after he died that it was actually released to the public, but he stood also in the massacre uh, in column for the uh, Badajo situation. The Instance of insubordination by General Wood uh, in the beginning of the battle where he directly defies the commander-in-chief is something that was known at the time or it was figured out after the inquiry and all of the Senate, uh, the Senate investigation was gone through. But T.R. apparently decided not to do anything about it because he thought that it might be politically uh, dangerous or damaging to 
go about investigating his good friend and somebody that he had clapped on the back and been touting for 20 years. Also, the Secretary of War and soon-to-be President and then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft, was a was basically the man in charge and was the Secretary of War at the time, and he knew that Wood was lying, but chose also to not investigate it any further because he wanted it to just kind of go away so that it wouldn't be used as ammo against him in his upcoming bid for president. Uh, the other interesting thing to come out of Badajo is that you have Leonard Wood, Hugh Scott, and Tasker Bliss all want, went on to become heavy hitters and would each reach the top spot in the U.S. Army. Tasker Bliss was Wood's replacement after the after he left the Philippines. He was on hand to witness the fiasco at Badajo, and he was totally put off by Wood's conduct and his decisions. Bliss insightfully wrote, quote, the authorities forget that the most critical time is after the slaughter has stopped. He would go on to become a fairly successful governor of the Philippines. Uh, there was a lot of the, the violence really died down under him. He halted large-scale operations and led no more punitive campaigns and really allowed for a certain level of normalcy to return to moral life. John J. Pershing would fight the Second Battle of Badajo in 1911, and he would use Scott's method, which was to, or, or Scott's plan, which was to ring the base of the mountain and just wait the Moros out and let the hunger make the food, you know, uh, the lack of food get the Moros to come down. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, another thing that I think is interesting is you have John Pershing writing in his uh, writing a letter to his wife after the Badajo uh, massacre, he wrote to her, uh, quote, I would not want to have that on my conscience for the fame of Napoleon, end quote. Oddly enough, the Americans at the time saw Wood as a hero and a masterful military man, and they saw Pershing as maybe a little light-handed and gentle with the natives, uh, which is is kind of funny to think of how drastically they they were different. The two people that noticed what Pershing did and approved, though, were Tasker Bliss and Hugh Scott. And this is important because in 1917, Pershing and Wood would both be up for command of the U.S. Expeditionary Force in France. This is a huge opportunity to make history, to be the uh, the number one military man in all of America, and for Wood, who was hoping to make the leap to politics and become the president in, in I believe, 1920 or 21, whichever it was, he really, really wanted it. He also had the uh, career achievements. He had seniority. He had name recognition, powerful allies. Uh, he had also a public relations machine. So it seems like Wood would have been the obvious choice, but somehow... Pershing, who had failed, uh, who had basically the failed pursuit of Pancho Villa in the Mexican hinterlands as his only real claim to fame, actually won out. The reason being is that the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, who was the sole decision maker on this, but he had Army Chief of Staff Hugh Scott and his Vice Chief of Staff Tasker Bliss whispering in his ear, telling him that Pershing was the guy. 
And Badajo wasn't done with the Second Battle of Badajo in 1911. Again, we see a conquering empire try and uh, take out the Philippines. In the 1930s and 40s, you have the rise of Japan, and the Japanese would hold the mountain against Allied forces, but uh, but they would lose the, the the third battle of Badajo and get crushed by Marine uh, corsairs, naval bombardment, and modern Allied artillery just blew uh, blew the mountain to bits. Basically, re- resurfaced the entire landscape. And in modern times, there has been a lot of activity in the Sulu archipelago and Moro land in general because you still have Moros fighting against uh, against the government and paying taxes and being told what to do. Uh, there's the uh, Moro National Liberation Front and the MILF, which is Moro Islamist Liberation Front. And these two groups are constantly fighting with the AFP, which is the Armed Forces of the Philippines. And there's also Abu Sayyaf, which is a ally of Al-Qaeda. And in the same area that the Americans were fighting in the Badajo campaign, in 2002, we sent Green Berets to help subdue and train Philippine uh, army members to deal with these terrorist groups. So, again, I couldn't figure out how to add all that stuff, all those great, juicy little details into the narrative, but I wanted to make sure that at least some of them got out to you guys. I especially think the uh, the stuff with Pershing and Bliss and Scott is very, very interesting. All right, so... I know, that was a long episode and a long time coming. Uh, It was a lot of fun. It was an amazing uh, battle to research. I learned so much, and I hope you did too. Uh, I really, really appreciate everybody hanging in there as I dealt with uh, some corona-related work stuff that really sidelined me for a, a good portion of the last month and a half, two months. I'm going to do my best to get back on track and get uh, content out with a little bit more regularity. And with that in mind, we have some stuff to look forward to. But first, I want to just comment on the sources I used. And actually, before I even get there, I think it's interesting. Again, I opened with it, and I want people to really germinate and, and, and let the idea of the echoes of uh, the the Badajo massacre and... Uh, Vietnam and and the Afghan war, let those things kind of really marinate. There are so many underlying themes and connections that can be made. I think it would be a shame to not have that be part of this whole story. And actually, one of the quotes that I I found really, really compelling uh, that, again, I couldn't fit, but it came from Tasker Bliss, who said, quote, the power of government would, stripped of all misleading verbiage, amount to the naked fact that the United States would have to hold the larger part of the people by the throat while the smaller part governs it, end quote. And he's referring to in the case of uh, the United States controlling a small foreign country or a colony or whatever it might be, we will often find ourselves trying to maintain power by holding everybody else or the majority of the people at bay with force and violence and trying to prop up a small, small uh, minority to govern. And I think that there is a lot to be said for that uh, that f- 
prophecy from Tasker Bliss. All right, so enough of that. The episode is over. I've got to get out of the Badajo mindset here. Um, the sources I used, the only real book I could find is by Robert A. Fulton, and it's awesome. It's Honor for the Flag, The Battle of Badajo, 1906, and the Moro Massacre. Uh, it is a weird, it's almost like one of those self-published books, so it's kind of a weird layout, and there's some uh, some funky uh, chapters and stuff like that, but the images are fantastic, some really, really excellent uh, uh, photos, and clearly, I, I believe that Fulton must have gone to uh, Badajo at some point. But uh, he did a really incredibly thorough job researching and, and pulling facts and pulling quotes and, and finding newspaper headlines. All the headlines that I read, he put those together. Um, so I really, you know, if I were to dedicate an episode to a an author, this one goes out to Robert A. Fulton. He did an amazing, amazing job. Uh, the other One of the other sources I used is called America's First Endless War Was Fought in the Philippines by Danny Sherson. Uh, it's a great article. It has a lot of the uh, the tie-ins to Vietnam and Afghanistan that I found really compelling. Um, and so definitely check that out if you get the chance. Uh, and up ahead, we've got Corvus's, Triremes, Carthage, and Battle on the High Seas in the Mediterranean. We've got the Battle of the Agates Islands. 